Welcome to our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Anna Townsend and I'm the preschool pastor here at Rolling Hills. We're bringing our series, Engage, to a close today with a message from Pastor Nick. Prayer is a fundamental in the Christian walk and we firmly believe that God listens to our prayers and can move in mighty ways through them. We hope and pray that this series and today's message encourages you with this truth today. Good morning. I hope that you're having a great Sunday so far and, and that you're as excited to be here as I am as excited that you are here. Um, my name is Nick Allen and I get to be the campus pastor of this location of Rolling Hills and it's a pleasure um, to continue opening up God's Word, particularly in this series, although today is the last day of it. If you've been tracking along with us over the last month and a half, we've been in a series called Engage and it's all about the ways that we would engage our spiritual growth and our spiritual lives, the idea that we might come together as a community of faith. That's, that's a point of engagement, the idea that we might be discipled in faith and take our next step towards following Jesus, the idea that we live our lives missionally and that ultimately every part of our life is to be an act of worship unto the living God. And today we zero in on really the most foundational aspect of the whole thing, which is prayer. And so I'm excited that you're here. Um, This morning you got to meet my wife Susan doing the welcome for us today. Many of you know her and what you may not know is that we met back in the 1900s. Um, And that's when we began our courtship and our dating life together. We were in undergrad together at Appalachian State University. And back then, some of you may not know this, um, back then people just had to meet up face to face. Like that's where you engage people. Um, It didn't happen in any other social settings. And you didn't have the benefit of any sort of online profile giving you all the details of their life so that you might scope them out and get to know them better. Like that wasn't even an option. And we sort of made the mistake, it was God's perfect timing, of starting our dating relationship during the spring semester, which meant that in just a few short weeks after we began dating, the, the, the semester was going to end, Mother's Day was going to come, and we were going to have to go our separate ways and be a long-distance relationship over the summer. There was no FaceTime. We couldn't look at each, like FaceTime was literally sitting face-to-face with one another, and so we had to begin this long-distance courtship experience, and I was traveling around the state of North Carolina serving on a ministry team that visited churches and camps. Fortunately for us, she was actually working for the summer at one of those camps, so I was going to get to see her a few times, but phones, we didn't have cellular ones. They made them back then, but they were giant, like shoe boxes, and really, it was like as big as a carry-on, and it was hard to carry around, and it didn't work very well, and so you didn't have, there was no text messaging. That didn't come until much later, so our options for communicating that summer were for me to get to a host home that was going to be having me stay with them over a weekend, serving in the life of a church, borrowing their phone to make a long-distance phone call to a payphone at a camp where 70 college students had to share the receiver. And so I would make multiple calls that summer, nine times out of ten, to get a busy signal. You don't know what that sounds like, many of you. That's okay, but it meant that somebody was on the other line and you couldn't get through. And so I would just have to hang up, be sad, and call again later. On the off chance that someone actually picked up the phone on the other end, I would literally say, um, is Susan Kofer there? That was her maiden name. And then somebody would literally, I could hear them, put the phone down on the shelf underneath it and stand on the end of both hallways, the girl hallway and the boy hallway. I don't know why she would have been in the boy hallway, but whatever. Okay, so shouting out loud, is Susan Kofer here? And then they would wait. And inevitably, they would pick the phone back up. I don't think she's here. Call again later. And then hang up, and I wouldn't get the opportunity to talk to her. It was a challenge. You guys have no idea what it was like for us back in the 1900s. Two summers went by like that, and then on the third summer, 
I was stuck in Raleigh all summer working a, a great job, by the way, but then she was actually getting to spend her summer ministry experience not at a camp, but in South Africa, which meant long-distance charges. And, and mul- multiple times, mercifully, we were able to actually talk that summer and cost us around $400. My parents didn't like that. <laughs> Some of us, we approach prayer as if it's a long-distance relationship from the 1900s, as if somehow God is too busy to hear from us, or as if somehow we've got to go through some other mediator to to hope that he'll hear us and to hope that we'll get a chance to talk to him, or ultimately that it's way too costly to spend time with him when the truth of the matter is it's way too costly not to spend time communicating with God. Prayer literally undergirds everything that we do. It's the eighth core value and the long list of things that we have on our Rolling Hills website of things that matter to us. And it literally does undergird or support or provide foundation for everything else that we do. Communication is the foundation of any healthy relationship. And it's the same for a husband and wife, a business partnership, a friendship, a dating life, as it is with us and God. We've got to have clear, constant communication for the relationship to be successful, and the relationship that we have with God is founded, funded even, by the idea of prayer. And so we're going to dive into that this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, you'll turn, whether it's an analog or you're scrolling along to find whatever passage we're going to be in. We're going to look at James chapter 5, the, really the latter part of that chapter and the latter part of that book this morning together. And then we'll bounce around to some other passages in Scripture that you can find in your notes on the app or in your own Bibles as you want to follow along. And I'll begin with verse 13 this morning. It says, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Somebody just said amen because you're like, I'm in trouble, and and I have problems. I have needs. I have issues, and so amen. I'm I'm in trouble. Well, let them pray. Is anyone happy? I hope somebody said amen because you got something good going on in your life right now. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We'll come back to that passage even later in the sermon when we dive a little deeper into verses 17 and 18. But right now, every single time that the word prayer is mentioned in that passage, it's literally the Greek word that means to offer prayers, the the verb to offer a prayer. And, And it's the combination of two words. First, the word eukamai, which means to pray. But then also the prefix pros, which means toward, like we're we're praying toward God, but it also means to the advantage of. It is to our advantage to make our prayers to God. And you have in your notes this morning several blanks that come from that passage of Scripture, opportunities just to kind of take some ideas from those words. And the first is this, prayer should be our first instinct, not our last resort. Prayer should always be our first instinct, not our last resort. It says, is anybody in trouble? Let them go to the library and check out a book based on the topic. No. Is anyone in trouble? Let them gather one of their friends and ask for advice. No. Is anybody in trouble? Let them pray. So much so that in a Bible-believing church like this is, and in a Bible believing friendship like we have. Anytime that you come to me with one of the problems that you face in life, I ought to be able to look at you as a brother and sister in Christ and say, oh, 
thanks for sharing that with me. What did God say when you talked to him? I ought to not be the first person that you talk to when you have an issue, and neither should one another. It ought to be him. There ought to be an understanding that in any moment when we have any sort of calamity, any sort of challenge, any sort of question, any sort of doubt, any sort of misunderstanding going on in our life, that before we've talked about it with anybody else, before we've posted about it online, by the way, too, or before we've approached any other source of wisdom or interest that we've consulted with the great God of this universe, he ought to be our first instinct, not our last resort, not after you've exhausted all other possible means, not after you've asked 12 other people, not after you've looked through the Rolodex of your opportunities in life to figure out how you can solve it on your own. He ought to be the first place that we go. Next kind of point that you can gather from this passage of scripture is that prayer is both individual and collective. Is anybody happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Like if you're happy, sing a song of praise. If you're sick and in trouble, pray a prayer. But if you also have some sort of issue, come to the elders of the church and allow them to pray over you. That's why every single week we promote this idea of prayer requests. That's why every single week we have this opportunity and a reminder, hey, put down your prayer requests. Give us the opportunity and the blessing of praying for you and with you and alongside you. And Susan mentioned it earlier this morning. We're actually moving our services in that direction to where every single week going forward and We'll try to do the due diligence of reminding you each Sunday there will be prayer team members over to the side of the stage every week at the conclusion of the service, willing and ready and excited to pray for you and with you over anything that's going on in life because it is an individual, private thing between you and God, and we'll get there when we talk about the words of Jesus, but ultimately it's also a corporate exercise that we do together with one another and for one another. Ultimately, It's also in your notes, number three is prayer is an expression of faith. Prayer is an expression of faith. It says, and the prayer offered in faith, every prayer is offered in faith. Every time you say, dear God, heavenly father, every time you address him in any sort of approach, it's an act of faith because you believe he's real. You're not saying, dear God, to the air. You're not saying, oh, heavenly father, to the sky. You're literally believing that someone is on the other end of that prayer hearing you. Every time we bow our knees or bow our heads or fold our hands in prayer, we're saying to the great God of this universe, I believe in you and I trust you. And you're the only one who can really solve this problem of mine. You're the only one who can help this calamity of mine. You're the only one that I can truly depend on in life. So let me bring my requests, my petition, my thoughts, my fears, my anxiety, anxieties, my hurts, my relationships, my celebrations to you and you alone. When we come to him, we're saying you're real and I trust you. That's worship and, and it's an expression of your faith in God. And finally, prayer is connected to our forgiveness and our future. It says confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Sometimes I wonder if we're not missing an aspect of healing in our lives because we've neglected the requirement of confession to one another in our lives. You can write that down. It's in scripture. Somehow the healing that we desire may not be coming because the confession hasn't been there of just how weak we are and just how sinful we are and just how much we need God and we need one another You look at the last part of the passage that we've read so far, and it says the prayer of a righteous person 
it's powerful and effective. And you're already kind of noting, well, that's why my prayers aren't heard. That's why I don't feel like God is answering. That's why I don't go to him first because I'm not a righteous person. You're not on your own account. You're not on your own effort. In fact, our best days are nothing but filthy rags before him. But righteousness, true righteousness, is something else. What constitutes that? It's life in Christ. It's life in Christ. Scripture explains to us in Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I don't care what I have to lose. Jesus Christ is worth it. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. This is the part to underline. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. What would the righteousness be that comes from the law? It would be your ability to not only memorize all 613 Old Testament commands, starting with the the top 10. We call those the Ten Commandments, but ultimately following every single one of those, which is impossible. Of the 613, y'all, I broke a bunch of them, and you have too. It's not our righteousness that comes from our ability to follow God's rules, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. If you're a person who's expressed faith in Jesus Christ, if you've trusted in his death, his burial, and his resurrection for salvation, if you know that he is the only way to have a relationship with God and the only way to experience eternal life, if you have come to a point in your life where you repented of that life of sin and chosen to follow him with your life, become a Christian or a Christ follower and declared that he alone is Lord, then you are by his account righteousness. And your life in Christ affords that designation for you, so much so that in James chapter 5 verse 16, where it says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, if you are in Jesus Christ, what it means is the prayer of Susan Allen is righteous and effective. The the prayer of Dwayne Lindsay is righteous and effective. The prayer of Kimberly Rowe is righteous and effective, not because of anything that they have done or will do, but because of who they are in Jesus. We're made righteous through faith, not by our works. It says our righteousness, we understand from Scripture, is afforded to us through Jesus and gives us access to God in prayer. Paul explains in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, just as disobedience of the one man, that's Adam way back at the beginning, Eve too, <laughs> just as disobedience of the one man the many, all of us, and all perpetuity are sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, that's Jesus, many will be made righteous. I I love the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. It's probably one of my favorite Old Testament books, and I realize that as many times as I say that about other Old Testament books, it really diminishes the fact that one of them actually is my favorite. He's one of my favorite Old Testament characters, and I realize as much as I say that about other Old Testament characters, it really diminishes the value of what a favorite is in my life, but I like Daniel. It's found in the Old Testament section of Scripture called prophecy, and it tells us about the future or end times, and some of that prophecy was related to the life of Israel that's already happened in the coming of Jesus, and some of that prophecy is yet to occur, and we look at Daniel as much for end times prophecy as we do even the book of Revelation, but the first six chapters of Daniel are really just a chronology of his life as a Babylonian exile and someone who was in leadership in the Babylonian empire. And it talks about the story and the journey of these 
young men who chose to follow God in spite of the fact that they're separate from their home country and they're separate from their land and God's promise for them. And the latter part of Daniel, chapter 7 on, are all the prophecy words that we read. We tend to spend a lot more time in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Fiery Furnace, Daniel, and the Lions, and those great narrative stories about obedience and faith than we do the prophecy sections, but there's some wisdom there. In Daniel chapter 9, we learn some specific things that Daniel was experiencing in his life it says in verse 1, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, from the scriptures that he was reading, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah, his predecessor, the prophet that told that Israel was going to be taken into exile, to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem, this exile that they were experiencing, would last 70 years. Daniel was literally given a confirmation from God's word based on his understanding of the words of the prophet that this exile would last 70 years. And Daniel was able to do some math and subtract and say, well, this is when we went into exile and this is when the temple was destroyed and this is how many years it's been since then. So this must be how many years we have left before God allows us to return home. And so what was his response to that wisdom? It says in verse three, so I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. You're God, I'm not. You're strong, I'm weak. You're it. So I come to you. I confess. I tell you that I need you. What follows in the book of Daniel chapter 9 is literally word for word his prayer to God. And in verse 17, we get a nugget. It starts in 17 and goes through 19. It says, now our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open up your eyes to see the desolation of the city that bears your name. Underline this part. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous but because of your great mercy. We don't come to God, dear God, how are you today? Let me tell you what my prayer requests are because there's anything good or redeeming or right about us. We come to him because in his mercy, he gave us Jesus. And when that sacrifice is applied to our lives, we have access to the very throne room of God to tell him who we are, to tell him where we are, to explain to him what we need and to offer him our requests. It's because of his righteousness, because of his mercy. So Daniel says, Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. We can pray. We should pray. We can pray because of his righteousness applied to our lives. And that ought to be a sigh of relief. We had to breathe a deep breath and say, whoosh, good, it's not up to me. It's not up to my goodness. It's not up to my righteousness. It's not up to the laundry list of good things that I've done in life. The only way that God hears from me, the only ways that my prayers can be, James chapter five, verse 16, powerful and effective is for them to be made in righteousness. And the only way for me to stand righteous is in Jesus. That's why we're able to pray. So how do we do it? 
How do we pray? What are, what are, what are the mechanics of it? And sometimes I, I think in my mind that we just don't know how to do it. Jesus' own disciples came to him, and they were written down for us in the book of Luke. Lord, teach us to pray. Like, tell us how we're supposed to do this. And, and we get what's called the Lord's Prayer. Many of you have memorized this prayer at some point in your life, uh, the, the Lord's way to pray. And, and he talks about it, and it's written down for us in Matthew chapter 6, which is part of Jesus' long discourse called the Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 5, he says this, When you pray, not if you pray, but when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, when you pray, not if you pray, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Prayer, like so many lessons in life, comes with a this is how you don't do it before you get to this is how you do do it. This is how it's done. This is how it's not done. A lot of times we put pressure on ourselves to, to know the right and the best words and to have the most flowery understanding. Scripture specifically says for us, you don't need all that. How many times have you sat in some sort of Bible study setting afraid that I'm going to call on you to pray? And you're like, oh, I hope he doesn't call on me. I hope he doesn't ask me in public to pray because I'm really nervous about praying in front of other people. This explains to us very thoroughly. We don't have to be nervous about praying before God. We don't have to be nervous about bringing him our words. Somebody else in the room may judge you, but he who is alone, the judge in life, is not going to because it's not about your words and it's not about how professional they sound or how thorough they are or how spiritual it makes you seem, that's an act of performance, not prayer. And so how do we do it? Jesus explains. He says this then in verse 9 is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And because of the words that are written down for us in other gospels, we add kind of a, a doxological ending to that. We say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Everything is yours, God. Amen. It's all about you, God. Amen. It's all about your will, your authority, your life, God. And we can pick apart the, the moments of that prayer and, and through Scripture understand that we should pray in the manner that Jesus described for us. We should tell God he's great. We should tell him that it's his will we want accomplished in the world, not our own. We should confess to him our sins. We should express to him our needs. And we should tell him that he alone is the authority and the power forever, that he's over all things for all time. That's how we pray. We can use Jesus' prayer as a model for how we do it. But then we can also grasp tools, tools that will aid and develop that discipline in our lives. It says in Acts chapter 2, verses 42, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking bread and to prayer. 
to be committed to it, you develop the tools that will support it. I learned acronyms growing up of like the way that you were supposed to organize and express your prayers to God. Some of these will be really familiar to you. Maybe you learned how to pray because of Acts 2.42, A-C-T-S when you pray. There's a big blank in your sermon notes today for you to jot down a couple of these tools, maybe the ones that you haven't heard before, maybe the ones that you wanna be reminded of, but the A in Acts stands for adoration. And that's just starting out your prayer, telling God how awesome he is, giving him praise, telling him that he's good, telling him that he's holy, telling him that he's right, telling him that he's pure, telling him that he's sovereign, telling him that he's healer, like telling God, this is how good you are, adoration. And the next part, the C, is, is our confession. Jesus said that, Lord, forgive us of our deaths. Daniel prayed that way. He began with confession, saying this is how rotten we are. This is you trusting that healing comes when we confess our sins to God and then one to another to say this is how wrong I am and this is how in light of that good you are because in your mercy you chose to forgive me instead of holding me accountable for the wretched sinner that I am. We make a prayer of confession to God. The T stands for thanksgiving. It's just telling God that we're grateful. I look at this as the list of saying, I'm so thankful for this, 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 and we gotta trust that in those moments, we're even thankful for the difficulties that we face in life because scripture says in all things give thanks because we're somehow able to worship and trust that God is able to work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So we'll even tell him thank you for the bad days because we know that somehow he can work it all out. And the S is supplication. These, this is the moment. We don't start out with our requests. We start out telling God he's good, asking for forgiveness, offering him thanks, and then finally making our laundry list of requests to God saying, hey, this is what we need. This is where we need wisdom. This is where we need healing. This is where we need increased trust. This is where we need to have confidence, God. This is where I need you to mend my broken relationships and to give us hope in life. It's a supplication. J.D. Greer is a popular pastor, written a bunch of books and talks, and we listen to his sermons online. He's got a lot of good things to say. He takes this, and he makes a whole other acronym that we might understand a little bit better because those words are kind of big, but the W just stands for wow. Just, I'm in awe of you, God. I can't, I can't even tell you how good you are. Scripture says it. My life backs up that. The experience of who you are is so good. The I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, God, for the ways that I failed you. I'm sorry, God, for the ways that I continue to hurt others. I'm sorry, God, for the ways that I continue to live against your will in my life. I'm sorry, the T. Thank you. Thanks, God. This is a great thing that we could take home to our kids and say, hey, guys, this is how you pray. Wow, God, you're awesome. I'm sorry for my sin. Thank you for your blessings and then help. Sometimes the most spiritual words that you can say have nothing to do with the passages of Scripture that you've memorized, but only your ability to look up to God in heaven and say, please help me. That's it. Just help. I need you. You express that need to him. Maybe you already knew this one. How about another one? I I like the one that spells the word pray. The idea, of course, that we begin with praise, that we just tell God that he's incredible. Um, and then we go into repentance. That's the confession part, to say that I'm a sinner and I need to turn away from that life of sin. And then the supplication is the asking. Hey, God, this is what I'm asking for in life, and this is what I need in life, and this is what people around me need in life, and this is what this world needs right now, which is more of you. This is us making our prayer for his name and for the name of his people. And then the why, this is why I love it, it's yield. It's literally concluding your prayer by saying, hey, this is what I want, God. Yet just like Jesus in a garden praying that the cup would be passed from him and he didn't have to experience that cruel death, he said, yet not my will but yours be done. 
this is what I want, God. This is what I think we need, God, but yet I just want to submit to your authority in life and your way of figuring out because your plans are better than my plans, so in all things I will yield to them. I learned as a kid also a way that you could look at your hand and pray, like just the five fingers of your hands, um, that first you would take your thumb, and it's basically like saying, hey, good job, God. You're awesome, right? Thumbs up. You're amazing, right? And the index. This is the things that you point at. I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful for this. It's the laundry list of things that we're so grateful for. And then your middle finger is confession. And I don't know if there's an association there that you want to make. That's on you. But we are certainly wrong in life. And we need to make our confession before God. The, the four is the intercession. That's when you're praying for others. This is the long list of requests that you have for others in your life and for the world that's around you. And it's no mistake that the last finger, the little finger, the weakest finger in the bunch is when you make your petition for yourself. Hey, this is me listing all the things that I'm praying for others in the world around me, which somehow also shifts the way that you prospectively pray for yourself. And then this is my needs, God. I, I like any of those, A-C-T-S-W-I-T-H, P-R-A-Y, or just looking at your fingers. There's tons of other tools, and none of these are literally outlined for us in Scripture to say pray this way other than the model prayer that Jesus gave us, but every single one of these points us to the idea of telling God that he's awesome, recognizing that we're not, offering him our gratitude for by him and through him and for all things were made that have been made, and we need to trust in him, and then ultimately saying, this is what I want, God. This is what I know you're capable of, God, yet it's your will that I need in my life, not mine. Those are the words that James spoke and wrote to an early church so that they would know how to pray. Pray without ceasing. Pray at all times. Pray because you know that you need God and you recognize who he is. And then he goes on to give them an example. He gives them an example. And out of that, we have to keep in mind that regardless of the tools that we use, regardless of the, 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 the ways that we somehow organize our prayer lives, keep in mind it's the audience of our prayers. It's the audience of our prayers that makes them effective. It's the audience of our prayers that matters most. And God is the audience. He gives an example. He says in verse 17, Elijah was a human being even as we are. Elijah, that Old Testament hero, he was just a dude. You can literally take the pressure off. Just a man, just like you guys. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. James making mention of that was a reminder of what happened way back in 1 Kings chapter 18. And you can go read the entire story, and it's a fantastic one of what God did in the life of Israel through that prophet in that season. But in verse 36 of 1 Kings 18, it says, At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. So these are the words that James was reminding people about. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, he's the audience of our prayers. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I've done all these things at your command. He literally set up an offering and made it nearly impossible for that offering to be burnt up and yet he was trusting that God in his power could do it. And he said, answer me, Lord, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. It's the audience of our prayers that makes them powerful. It's the audience of our prayers that makes them effective. 
We named our third kid, our only little boy, Simon. And he loves the fact that his name is Simon and that his name is in the Bible. We've been watching this, I guess, mini-series. I think you have to get it through an app or you can stream it on your TV. It's called Chosen, and it's literally the story of Jesus calling his disciples. And the cool thing about this, as opposed to, you know, lots of the other pictures of, of, of Bible that have been brought to life through film through the years, is that it's just super good. Like, the special effects are remarkable. And the, I mean, it's like literally 2021 technology applied to New Testament stories, and you see it like when a, 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 the possessed woman is freed. It's like, whoa, that's some good special effects. When the fish come in the boat, you're like, whoa, how'd they make that happen? It's just really incredible. And every time, because Simon is a key feature of the story from start to finish, you can see Simon get excited when we're watching it because there's his name. Well, the word Simon literally means he who hears. And we named him Simon, knowing that we want him to hear God. James is his middle name, and James 1.22 says, be ye not hearers of the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. We want Simon to hear the word of God, but then we also want him to do the word of God in life. Simon means he who hears, and we certainly want to hear from God when we pray. Like, I want to be a person who hears from God. Lord, speak to me, uh, there's another Old Testament Hebrew word that goes along with Simon. They're literally brother names. Because Simon means he who hears Samuel. They come from the same root, means God has heard. I want to know that I can hear from God. But I also want to know and trust that God hears from me. Elijah was just a man. So are you. We're, we're just weak vessels. And yet the great God of this universe speaks to us. And the great God of this universe invites us to speak to him so that he can hear from us. Prayer, as much as anything else, indicates an incredible connection. It's the foundation of the relationship that you and I have with God. And in our prayers, we tell him that he's great. We tell him that we need him to forgive us and to use us. We tell him about all the things that are going on in the world that we need the touch that only he can provide because we know it's the audience of our prayer that matters the most. And then we yield to his authority in life to say, yet not our will, God, you've got this. We want your will to be done and your kingdom to come. It's all about you. And we surrender to who you are. This morning, it's no accident that we have communion elements set up. And, and so I just want to invite you into a time of worship where we'll experience these elements together. And maybe you didn't grab a set when you came in or one wasn't offered to you. That's okay. I just want to invite you to this table right now. We've got plenty of elements here at the front table and plenty of elements on the table that's in the balcony in the back. So if you didn't grab one this morning, just come on up and take one today. I grew up in a tradition. Yeah, come on, guys. I grew up in a tradition where we often called this the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. It, it referenced the moment in Jesus' life and ministry right before his arrest and his trial and his conviction and his crucifixion and ultimately his resurrection. It, it references that last Passover moment in Jesus' life with his disciples and, and where he gathered together to celebrate the goodness of God in the book of Exodus where God rescued their people from slavery in Egypt and God offered them a path towards the land called promise. And so I grew up calling this the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper because it reminded us of the Passover moment where Jesus took this traditional holiday that they had celebrated all their lives for all Israel's history, and he changed the elements to mean something more than the blood that was smeared on a doorpost 
to mean the blood that would be shed for them on a cross. The way that they would be spared of their sin was now symbolic of the way that they were freed from slavery in Egypt. So I grew up calling it the the Last Supper or the the Lord's Supper. Some of us grew up calling it communion. Oh, well, this is a, a, a great word for this exercise because it's an opportunity for us to literally connect with God. And it's only by the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that we're able to come before God, that we're able to connect with God, that we're able to experience salvation. And every time we do this, we do this to remind ourselves of the sacrifice that Jesus made. So, so this act of communion is literally a fellowship with one another, but it's also a fellowship with the divine. Some of you grew up in a tradition that called this a fancy word called Eucharist. Or or, or many people are still in a tradition today that uses that word interchangeably with communion or Last Supper or Lord's Supper, and it's an appropriate one. Here's why. It's because the word Eucharist in Scripture literally means to give thanks. And it was the very first words that were ever written down about communion. How do we know that they're the first words? Because they've are found in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we know that 1 Corinthians was written down even before the gospel writers recorded their stories of Jesus, even before the gospel writers wrote down the passion of the Christ and his approach to the cross. Paul was writing a letter to a church in Corinth about the way that they were supposed to worship and trust God. And he says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, talking about this moment in the life of Jesus and giving thanks, he broke the bread. And Eucharist, he broke the bread. The Apostle Paul attached the idea of thanksgiving to the celebration of Holy Communion. And then quoted Jesus' words, hey, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So when we think about Jesus, we ought to be thankful for Jesus. The second reason why Eucharist is a really good word, because Eucharist means giving thanks in Greek, well, the Old Testament Hebrew word for giving thanks was todah. And in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Numbers, we're given tons of different offerings. We're explained tons of different ways that Israel was supposed to come and to worship God. And it often involved a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice of an animal. You know that they had to always bring a lamb or a goat or a bull or a ram, and they had to slaughter that thing on an altar, and the blood had to dip down, and the priest had to do all these things. Y'all are lucky you're not growing up in the Old Testament, and I'm sure lucky to be a pastor, not an Old Testament priest, because I don't think I could do all that. So all of those offerings in Leviticus and Numbers involved the shedding of blood as a reminder of the payment that had to be paid to cover people's sin. And so it makes perfect sense that we would attach the sacrifice that Jesus made and the shedding of Jesus' blood to those offerings for our sin. But the peace offering or the thanksgiving offering, the, the todah offering in Leviticus and Numbers was different. Do you know what you had to bring to a todah offering? Not a goat. Oh, thank goodness. Not a lamb. You had to be bring baked bread and wine. The Thanksgiving offering in the Old Testament was bread and wine. And so we take these elements today to remind us of the blood sacrifice that Jesus make and to offer our gratitude that we don't have to do that anymore. So we bring bread and wine. So this morning, if you have your elements, I invite you to take off the smaller of the two tabs and to reveal the tiny little wafer of bread. Really low calorie, gluten-free. And it's a reminder for us, not only of the broken body of Jesus, which symbolically this represents, 
but ultimately of our gratitude and our thanksgiving that we bring to him to say thank you for dying in our place. Thank you for offering forgiveness. Thank you for offering sustaining hope in life that I don't have to conjure up on my own or figure out on my own. I have you to thank for that, God. And so as often as we do this, we do this to remind ourselves of the sacrifice that Jesus made and also as an offering of thanksgiving that we get to bring take and eat all of it. On the night that Jesus was with his disciples, he also took the cup, and he explained to them that this would be the blood of a brand new covenant. This would no longer remind them just of the moment when their ancestors made it out of Egypt. This would remind them of the blood that he was about to shed on a cross so that their sins may be atoned for and so that they may live. But wine was also a symbol of promise and provision. It reminded them of vineyards that they didn't plant, grapes that they got to harvest, and and literally the provision of God as they entered into a land. So we take this today as a reminder of the blood he shed, but also as a thanksgiving offering to say, God, thank you for our blessings in life. Thank you for your provision in life. Thank you for our forgiveness in life. Thank you for the hope that you offer us in life. Thank you for who we get to be in life because you died for us. So take and drink all of it. And as often as you do it, be reminded of what Jesus gave and then also how very grateful you are. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful today. Grateful for the wisdom that we find in your word. Grateful for the opportunity that we have to come to you in prayer. Grateful that we get to live our lives as free people, knowing that you love us, knowing that you hear us, knowing that you speak to us, knowing that you have a plan for us, knowing that it's only because you died for us that we get to live. And so, God, today we tell you thank you. And we understand that these elements are symbolic of the sacrifice that you made, but they are also symbolic of the thanksgiving that we bring. And we tell you today, God, thank you for your son. Thank you for his life. And thank you for the gain that we have in ours because he died in our place so that we might know you. And we come to you today, God, with a laundry list of ways that we need to encounter you, God, to tell you these are our problems, God. These are our infirmities, God. These are our challenges, God. These are our broken pieces, God. And we confess the fact that we've made most of those beds ourselves. And all we need is your love your hope, your forgiveness, the peace that can only come from you, the healing that can only come from you. And so we make our prayer boldly, God, to tell you that we need you and to tell you that we want nothing more in this life than your will to be done. For it's in the holy and precious perfect name of your son that we make our prayer and to his sacrifice alone that we cling to today. Amen. Would you stand as we sing? Thanks for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, where you can find great podcasts like Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, RH Women's As You Go Podcast, and more. If you want to learn more about what's going on in the life of Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit our website at rollinghills.church. 
From there, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date on what's happening and ways that you can connect. We're so thankful for you.